Good morning, everyone. If you could open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be concluding our series, uh, not our series actually, but we're going to be concluding um, our time in the book of 1 John. We began this series called Life in the month of September, and we're in our fourth month, but we're going to be concluding today the epistle of 1 John. Uh, we're going to have some Advent messages and Christmas messages and end of the year sort of thing, and then we're going to return back in January, I think the second Sunday of January, to complete our series of life when we go into second and third John at that point. Uh, but today we're going to conclude first John um, with uh, the final passage that we've been kind of culminating towards. And uh, we're going to look at first John chapter 5, verse 13 through 21. And throughout these four months, as we've been looking at 1 John, uh, John has been introducing to us about seven different themes of how we can know as professing followers of Jesus Christ that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us, that our profession of faith has indeed led to eternal life through Christ. And so how do we know that? We've been looking at seven different assurances and in our passage this morning, uh, chapter 5, verse 13 through 21, John is going to circle back around and hit on many of the themes that he has been talking about uh, throughout his entire epistle. And so it's kind of like a summary, not of every theme, but of several of the main themes. Um, and today's sermon, um, I'm not going to go into great depth on any one uh, of these uh, passages we've looked at that in depth over the past few months. You can go back if you like to listen to the podcast sermons. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of summarize each point. There's uh, several of them and make some applications to our church. So uh, if you want to rise with me, let's go ahead and read God's word together in First John chapter 5, verse 13 through 21. John writes this to us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep ourselves, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, we have come together this morning, um, and our presence here as the gathered church is our declaration that um, you are the one and true living idol, 
that you have plucked us out of the world, out of a life of sin, out of the grasp of the evil one, so that we have communion and eternal life with your son, that whatever we ask of you according to your will, because we live according to your will now, Lord, uh, you will grant to us and grant to us life. And so uh, I pray that as we come to the end of 1 John this morning, that you would, um, would do a final work to renew our minds, to sanctify our souls, to assure us of the great eternal life that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And have a seat, thank you. Um, like Earl was saying, it's busy. It's always busy during this Christmas season. Um, this, this was a crazy week for us. You know, um, Darcy was born on December 1st. Keen was born on December 2nd. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Keen. No, no. Darcy was born on December 1st. Ethan was born on December 2nd. Keen was born on September 22nd. And I forgot when my birthday was. And forget how old I am, too. So that, you have a lot to look forward to when you get older. Your memory goes. Um, but the inner man is renewed day by day. So, you know, we had parties, we had Friendsgiving, we had all this stuff, and uh, Cynthia was coming over to our house last night, and she did a floor arrangement as part of Darcy's party, and she says, oh my gosh, you, you guys are so busy, and I just turned to her and I said, you know what, um, for my birthday coming up, I just told my family, I just want to do nothing. <laughs> I want to go to sleep early. <laughs> um, I don't need anything. I really don't. Okay, I just want to rest. That's all I want. Uh, because it's been so crazy. And, you know, Earl reminded me in his prayer of a couple things, is that one, um, it's like that every year for a lot of people. Um, and I think whether that's school, whether it's your job, whether it's parties, whatever it is, it's very hard to focus on Christ during the season. Uh, we focus on Christmas festivities and Christmas activities. We make time for that. It's very hard to focus on Christ. And the reason why you want to be here at this point in the, in the, in, is because our world is moving further and further away from Christ. It's moving further and further away from the church. Um, Easter is not going to be seen as a holiday in the future, and probably Christmas won't either. I mean, you listen to a lot of the Christmas songs on the radio. We've been listening to Coast, you know. We always have the radio on in the car because we're always listening to the Christmas music. Very few of them are about Christ, right? And so you being here this morning is really your declaration to say, in a world full of idols, in a world that's ruled by the evil one, I need to be here. I need to be reminded of the eternal life that I have in Christ in eternity and the eternal life that he can give me now. That is my only hope. Um, because I know what it's like to have the pride of life, the desire of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, First John 2. I know what it's like to connect my life to a world that's passing away. Uh, but he who fears God and does his will abides in him forever. Again, 1 John 2. And so I need to be reminded of that. And I need to be in a community of people who are attempting, often failing, to live that out so that my faith can be renewed and strengthened uh, amidst a dark and broken and idolatrous world. And, um, and that's why we're here today. That's what we're here to be reminded of, that the eternal life of Christ is not just for eternity, although it is, but it's for now. And uh, you want to come away from this church service and from First John saying, whatever my you know, flailing around in my Christian walk is life, whatever my like, 
depth, uh, depths I've gone to. Um, I want to return back to Christ this morning. We're going to receive communion at the end of the sermon. That's your opportunity to do that. And uh, this is God's grace in your life and my life. And so let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 21. It's going to go rapidly through. Uh, he's circling about around uh, to a lot of things he's been talking about in the epistle. Verse 13. John reminds us of why he wrote 1 John. We've been referencing this verse every single week throughout the service. He says, I write these things to you. What are these things? It is um, the entire epistle. He is writing these things to those of you who believe, those of us who profess to know Christ and the Son of God, that we may know that we have, in the past tense, eternal life. Remember, John wrote the Gospel of John, and he said, I write these things to you so that you may know eternal life. So he wrote the Gospel of John so that you may come to faith in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. He wrote 1 John so that you may have the assurance that the eternal life that you have is indeed real. So this is why he has written this to us, eternal life. And remember, when we talk about eternal life, we tend to have this this mindset of it's just for eternity. And this is it's a beautiful thing because time will seem like nothing when we get to eternity, but eternal life actually starts now. It's a dual definition of eternal life. Jesus does not offer you life only when he returns, only when you pass away in eternity. He offers you the expanse of eternal life now to be experienced now, the riches of his inheritance now, your identity in Christ now, his unlimited forgiveness for those who believe now, his grace in your life now. And that is what we profess as Christians, is that no matter what our sin is, no matter what our failings are, his eternal life, his eternal grace is available to us who repent and come to him. So that we may know that we have eternal life. Verse 13. The big, two biggest problems that humanity has are sin and death throughout human history. You can track every problem that people have ever had back to those two things. Man's sin and that sin that has created all this suffering and pain and evil in the world and the death that has come about because of sin. If you didn't have sin in your life, you didn't have death in your life, uh, there would be no need for a savior. There will be no need for eternal life. And so our biggest problem is sin and death, but our biggest need is eternal life. Eternal life. Um, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that uh, God has put eternity in the hearts of man, but they cannot understand it. What that means is that God has placed within every single human being a desire for eternity a desire for eternal life. Nobody wants to die and just be gone. Even though some people say that, they might accept that in a kind of resigned way. People want to live. And we want to know that it's not going to come to an end. And we want to know that there's an eternal God behind everything 
uh, of what's going on in the world because we can't handle the responsibility of life itself if it was only in the hands of man. We need to believe in an eternal God who has created things and sustaining things and has a plan for the future. So when John says in verse 13, you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying many things. He's saying you have eternal life now. You have eternal life in eternity. He is saying that uh, your greatest need is for eternal life. He is saying that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man and woman to desire eternal life and to desire an eternal God. This is our need. You know, as I've gotten older, uh, eternal life means something more to me now than when I was in my 20s, even 30s. Um, I think as I've gotten older, uh, this is what you realize. How fast, and it's true. I, I used to hear this when I was in my 20s, but I now really get it. They would say, I can't believe how fast life goes by. I would listen to these people in their 60s, 70s, married. I, it seems I can remember when we got married. I can remember when my kids were born. And now I'm a grandparent. I can't believe how fast life went by. Maybe you realize that too. You will realize it more as you get older. You will be astonished at how fast those, you know, all of a sudden the wrinkles, the gray hair, you lose your hair, you, you, you gain the belly, you know, your body doesn't move as fast as it used to be. I was like, I'm just a shell of the man I used to be, or woman. How fast life goes by. And you also realize as you get older, um, your need for eternal life. Because your life is, seems to be accelerating as it gets older. And you want to hold on to your life. I think that's why people, you know, they, especially in LA, we do everything to worship youth, to look young. We alter our bodies, we dress, we act, we worship youth because we want to hold on to that eternal life that we think we can have. And uh, as you get older, I, I think for me, I, I am more appreciating that I want to have eternal life with God. I do. Um, and it's not just a fear of hell. Not just a desire to not live eternally in death and hell in, in the lake of fire. That's certainly a big part of it. But I want to be with God. I look at life now and I say, um, I know, even though it's not fully described in Scripture, that heaven is orders of magnitude better than anything I can experience on earth. The most pleasurable experience you've had on earth. The best food you've ever tasted. You know, the, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen will pale in comparison to the eternal life that you will have in heaven. And I want to be there. I want to be there and I want to see my wife. I want to see my kids there. I want to experience the joy of eternity. I want eternal life. And uh, my struggle is I'm often drawn away from it here on this planet. Um, and it's a tempting thing in the world we live in. But as I return back to Scripture, as, I, as I'm part of a community of faith, I'm reminded, this is your primary need, eternal life. And so John has written that to us who believe to remind us of that. Verse 14 and 15, he says, we can have confidence towards God if, 
If we ask anything according to his will, he'll hear us, verse 15. Um, And if he hears us in whatever we ask, this is whatever we ask according to his will, in verse 14. Uh, Verse 15, we know that we have what we have of uh, our requests that we have asked of him. Let's stop there. So what's John saying in verse 14 and 15? He's saying that we who believe, as long as we ask according to God's will, we will have it. God will not only hear, but he will grant it. But that's the key, isn't it? It's according to his will. Uh, this is, he's circling back to a theme that he raised in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, John said, if we ask, we will receive uh, what we ask of God because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. 1 John 3. And so in verse 14 and 15, he's making a promise to us in our prayer life. What are we asking God in our prayer life for? Um, I, you know, I can, I, I can, when Earl came up here for the community prayer, I had a leading. I'll just say, I think it was a real leading from the Holy Spirit. I, was, I, was, I had no idea the topic he was going to choose for community prayer. He's talking about the idols in our life and all the distractions. And before he came up, I had just had this hunch. I think he's going to talk about idols. He could have talked about anything, and that's exactly what he talked about. And when he did that, I was so convicted because I see some of that in my own life, uh, what, which we'll get to a uh, little bit later on. Uh, but a reason why I mention it now is because I found myself not so much asking God for like all these idols and stuff, but thinking about them, you know, and that's a form of prayer what occupies my mind. And as I was at times straying towards all these worldly things that I want, I'm simultaneously convicted by God. And I was like, God's not going to give that to me. There's like no way. Okay. Because it's like James, the book of James says, you you ask, but you don't get, because when you ask, you ask for worldly things. Okay. But you know, it, I could feel really guilty about that. And on some level I do, but I also feel very good about that in the sense that the fact that I'm recognizing that what I'm asking or, or, or thinking about, uh, I know God's not going to do because that's a sign of God's work in my life. See, what I should be doing is asking for God, what God's will is in my life. And so if you're taking notes, I'm just going to go really quickly through some New Testament scriptures. I'm going to give you uh, five different things of what you should be asking for that is according to God's will. Verse 14, verse 15. He says, ask, we have confidence. He'll hear us. He'll do whatever we ask uh, when we request it. Again, according to his will. So the question that we have to ask right now is, when we come to God in, in prayer and we want to know that God hears us and we want him to grant our requests according to his will, then the question we have to ask is, what should we be praying for that is according to his will? Because if we do that, we can know that he will give us what we ask. And so what we know is this. We know in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, 
Jesus says to pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God will answer that prayer. That should be part of our prayers. We pray for Darcy, Keen, and Ethan almost every single night. We go into their bedroom. We just lay a hand on them. We pray for them. And one of the prayers I continually pray, I probably pray this more days out of the week than not, is God, may your will be done in their life on earth as it is in heaven. God will answer that prayer. You pray God's will for his, your, the life of you and your family and your kids. God will answer that prayer. Secondly, God will answer the prayer of his will for your sanctification. For your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 through 5. And 1 Peter 4, verse 1 through 3 say something very similar. This is the will of God, your sanctification. If you pray for that, God will answer that. He will answer that according to his will. Lord, sanctify me. You want to know a dangerous prayer to pray? I mean, some of our prayers are kind of mundane. I'll say grace. You know, I'll kind of repeat these mindless kind of mundane phrases. Prayer should be dangerous at times. It should be not just God help me, but it should also be, there should be an element to your prayer life where it's dangerous. And I'll tell you what one of the dangerous prayers is. God, sanctify me. God, do whatever it takes to sanctify me. I'm begging you, God. I beg, if you got to discipline me, if you have to punish me, you do that, God. I'm asking for it. If I don't repent, from the idols in my life, or for what these other things. You do whatever it takes to sanctify me, Lord, and I will embrace it. I'm asking, I'm begging you, to, oh, God will do that. And you know what? A lot of us, we won't pray that prayer because it's too convicting. And we know it's the truth. And we know if we pray that prayer and beg God for that, you know, we don't, we don't want to go through the pain of it, right? See, it's always better to discipline ourselves and to have God discipline us. Always better. It works out better for you, okay? To have self-discipline rather than have God discipline you. Uh, but that's another uh, thing we can ask according to God's will, our sanctification. God's will be done, our sanctification number three. We know that God's will is that we give thanks. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, give thanks, for this is God's will. Give thanks. Um, when Darcy and Ethan had their birthday parties, they got gifts. Oh, they were thankful after that. They came up to me. They gave me a hug. My teenage daughter gave me a kiss. You know, that's very valuable, you know, when you have a teenager now to get a kiss from your daughter. Um, they were thankful when they got the gifts. And that's, that's a nice family moment. But, um, but thankful in all circumstances is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's hard. It's hard to do. Um, I've had a hard year. I've had a hard several years. It's hard for me to give thanks for that. It's, it's not, and I think it's not necessarily give thanks for misery coming into your I love misery. Give me more. Um, but I think it's thanks that God is with you amidst the misery. I think it's thanks that you're not left without hope amidst the trial, temptation, and testing. I think it's thanks because 
It is our act of faith that is through these, this difficult circumstance. In some way, God will make all things work together for the good who, for those who love him. Uh, Romans 8. Even though you don't see it, we don't know it, right? A- Abraham, like, uh, like Jay was reading in the Advent reading, he, he didn't know, like, is God going to, what, what's he going to do with Isaac? This is my only son. I'm an old man. And he didn't know it'd be a, a you know, a antecedent, a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. Or, I don't know, maybe he did, maybe God, but it doesn't suggest that from the text that he knew all that. And so God has this plan and we can have faith that God will, will work it out. We give thanks. Uh, number four. We ask for wisdom and God will give it. For James chapter 1, verse 5. We know that this is the will of God. James chapter 1, verse 5. God, give me wisdom. I'm not going to doubt. I'm not going to be like a man tossed to and fro, double-minded man. James says, don't be. James 1. Give me wisdom. Your wisdom. Sometimes God gives us wisdom, but we don't take it. And uh, I, I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, when you look at the flow of Scripture, he who is faithful with little things will be granted more. I think the same thing happens with wisdom. We ask God for wisdom, and sometimes he gives it to us, but we say, no, nah, I don't think I want to do that. I want a different answer. I know what the wisdom is. And, and we wonder, why doesn't God, you know, impress his wisdom upon us more? Well, I, I think there is a part of God where he says, I will give wisdom to those who are faithful with the wisdom I give to them. And if you ask me for wisdom and I give it to you and you don't take it, why should I keep giving it to you? You know, um, we have the wisdom in the word we can turn to. That's, that's set. But in prayer, asking God for wisdom, I think we have to ask, are, if we're going to ask, are we willing to receive? And lastly, things that we ask for according to God's will, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. 1 Peter 2, verse 15. This is the will of God, Peter says, that by doing good, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the will of God. God, help me to do good. And in doing good, there are foolish people. There are ignorant people around me. Um, and I... I want to do good because this is your will. Um, I've been around many foolish people, many ignorant people over the past few years. Been trying to do what is good. Sometimes people, uh, they're not silenced in their ignorance. They're not silenced in their foolishness. They just continue on in it. But that doesn't change my commitment to saying, I'm going to do good. I'm not going to take vengeance. So if we ask anything according to his will, we will receive what we've asked of him. Verse 14, 15. Verse 16. Uh, He talks about verse 16 um, and really into verse 17 about sin, the role of sin. And sin is a huge theme in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4. In those three chapters, John mentions uh, the role of sin in our lives over a dozen times. Um, God wants us to take sin seriously. He says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. 
He wants us to take sin seriously in the body of Christ. There's a role for church discipline. There's a role to encourage other brothers in holiness. There's a role uh, to help one another carry each other's sinful burdens. And he says here in verse 16, if you see another brother committing a sin not leading to death, that is another brother who's another follower of Jesus Christ, they're in not just a one-time sin maybe, but kind of this flow of sin in their life that we are to um, ask of God and God will give him life to those whose sins do not lead to death. So in the normal flow of the life of a believer, if we see other believers in sin, we are to say, Lord, help release them from this. Help them to repent. We are to ask, verse 16, and God will give him life. So uh, we want to pray for people who are in sin in our community. Very important. And God will be for that. He will be for us. Part of the role of your involvement in the church and why it's so important to be here is uh, we, we have a very American way of looking at things. It's all about I, I, I in the singular. What can God do for me? How can he help me in my life? And we're all like that. Uh, and there's, there's a legitimate thing to that because God doesn't save a whole people. He saves individuals that make a collection of a whole people named the church. However, at what point do you start seeing your Christian faith as not just about I, but we? How many do we? And part of we, and not just I, is you have an important role to play in the body of Christ, verse 16, because God wants to use you as a sanctifying influence in the life of another believer. We wonder why the church is so anemic today. And what we discover is that Every, every time we come together and it's just I and what can God do with my personal struggle? And we're not looking around. How can God use me to help another believer in their struggle? City Bible Church will not become the church that God wants her to be until we continue to grow looking at each other and saying, how can I ask God to help you to overcome the sin in your life? There's a place for um, listening to them, a brother who's in sin. There is a place for empathizing with them. There is a place for, um, you know, reading the scriptures to them. There is a place for church discipline. There is a place for loving them. There is a place for all of that. However, there is also a place, verse 16, to say that we should ask and God will give him life for prayer for others. So we've got to be involved in each other's lives. Verse 17, uh, actually the second part of verse 16 and then going into 17. He says, but, and this is a transition now, there is a sin that leads to death. Okay, so the first thing he's talking about in the first part of verse 16, he's saying believers who are in the caught in the normal flow of sin that doesn't lead to their death, either spiritually or physically, that we are to pray for them. Okay, that's the first part of verse 16. The second part of verse 16 and into verse 17, he's talking about a second category of people now. He says in the second part of verse 16, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. There is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so let's look at the second part of verse 16 first. 
theologians are split on what the second part of verse 16 means. When he says, there is a sin that leads to death, I do not say that you should pray for that. That is almost a confusing thing to say, right? What sin leads to death? And why would he say, I do not say that you should pray for that? That almost seems opposite, right? And there's two possible interpretations to the second part of verse 16. And both of them can work because both of them you find in scripture. The first interpretation of a sin that leads to death is the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's found in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke. This is where Jesus says, um, anyone who sins against, you know, uh, against me, it can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, um, you will not be forgiven. And that's what theologians call the unforgivable sin. Now, what is that? It is the sin that an unbeliever commits where the Holy Spirit is trying to reach them, trying to minister to them, trying to say, come to Jesus in life. And an unbeliever's heart becomes so hardened, rejects God so many times that it's a blasphemy against the work of the Holy Spirit trying to draw them to faith and then they're lost. There comes a point with God where he says, that's it. It's over. Uh, You shut the door, the door is shut, and it's done. And so in verse 16, when he says there's a sin that leads to death, that is one impossible interpretation. There are some unbelievers where it is too late. It is too late. You see this in 2 Thessalonians as well, where he says in the end times, God will send a delusion to people who have hated them so that they won't come to faith. You see this in the ministry of Jesus when he said, you know, the people's hearts were hardened in Matthew 13. And so he only spoke to them parables so that they would not understand. This is why it's so dangerous for unbelievers to continually reject God because there can come a point where it is just over and the door is shut to the way of salvation. Yes, God sovereignly chooses. Yes, God elects. Yes, he predestines. I'm not talking about that. We believe in all that. What we're talking about here is also the other teaching of scripture that says there's an aspect where at some point it does get sealed in its eternal eternal consequences. The second possible interpretation of the second part of verse 16 is there is also the possibility, and we do see this in scripture, where believers can be so um, egregiously involved in sin or commit certain sins where God just takes their life. He just ends it. You see this in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. They took some money, they sold it. They took some property, they sold it. They had money. It wasn't so much that they didn't give all the money to the church, it says in Acts 5. It was that they lied about it. You know, you don't have to sell your house and give all your money to the church. And if you don't, God's going to strike you dead. But Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, They sold their house, they had a certain amount of money, they held it back, and they said, here's all the money. Peter confronts them in Acts 5, he says, you know what, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and it was right then that they were struck down dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, you read this passage about communion, and it specifically says in 1 Corinthians 11 that 
Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and dying. When you receive communion, because you're doing it in an unworthy manner. And there the Corinthian church was there. One of the implications of communion, don't think that this is just a remembrance, some kind of ritual. There is a spiritual dynamic happening in communion. And what the Corinthian church learned is that people who were treating communion in a flippant way, some of them became physically sick and some of them died. And so that is a sin that can lead to death, either one of them. All wrongdoing is sin, verse 17, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So he's saying take this seriously, whether it's a believer, verse 16, who's in sin, that we are to pray for, that God would help them uh, to be restored, or verse uh, 16, again, that there are believers that can fall into um, death for their unrepentant sin, and there are also unbelievers that can be cut off from the life of God for good. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John is again circling back around in verse 18 to what he talked about in 1 John 3. He talks about when we sin, it's lawlessness. When we sin, we show that we are not of God. When we have unrepentant sin, rather, and live lawless lives, and we show that we do not belong to God, and it shows that we are of the devil. You cannot be a believer and consistently live in an unbroken pattern of unrepentant sin. Let me say that again. You cannot be a believer. You cannot have the assurance that you're a believer. Let's put it that way. You cannot have the assurance that you're a believer and continually live in a long-term, unrepentant pattern of sin. I am not talking about a believer who struggles at times with pride, greed, lust, foolishness. I'm not talking. We all do to some extent. That's why we need the cross of Christ. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to continually forgive us and cleanse us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, and we all know this. We all have all seen this in our lives or in the lives of other people. People who profess to follow Jesus Christ. People who have gone to church at some point, And you see no fruit of repentance in their life. You see no uh, being convicted of sin in their life. You see no desire to want to come to God and say, God, uh, let me live, live out of your righteousness. That's what John is talking about here. He's saying, look, in verse 18, if you're born of God, you don't keep on sinning because God protects you and the evil one does not touch you. See, when you become a believer, this is the beautiful thing that really separates Christianity from Buddhism, from Islam, from self-potential possibility thinking, is that the difference between Christianity and all of that is that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have God in you. God protects you, verse 18. You have the presence of God in you through the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does in your life, he dwells within you. You become the temple of God. He is your deposit guarantee of the inheritance that you have in heaven. He is your helper. He is your advocate. He is your intercessor. And he comes 
and dwells within you. And so when we sin as believers, the scripture says that it quenches the work of the Spirit, that it grieves the work of the Spirit in your life. You cannot go on long-term living like that. In addition, Paul says that uh, unrepentant sin starts to sear the conscience. Think about a hot iron that you leave on a piece of clothing for like, you know, five minutes and you take it off. The piece of clothing is seared and it's ruined for good. That's what happens to the conscience in long-term unrepentant sin. And so you can't live like that. It's like trying to live your life in a constant state of distress. You can be stressed from time to time. You can go through difficult times of anxiety. But to live under constant anxiety and stress every hour of your life, and it just only grows in intensity with no sense of relief, believers, true believers cannot live like that. You you will be driven back to Christ. And if you're not, then there's no conflict going on in your spirit and the Holy Spirit's not there. This is what John's saying. Um, I I see this. I I see people who say, I profess to follow Jesus Christ, but I'm never part of a church community. I'm like, how can you live like that? Really? How can you live like that? You you think that you're going to overcome the evil one on your own? You you think that uh, you don't matter to the body of Christ? You think that you don't need other believers to help you live a sanctified life? Is that what you really think? You think you're going to do it on your own? You think you're strong enough? Then the entire framework and sweep of the system of the evil world that's solely designed to bring you down? You think you're stronger in the spiritual realm against Satan and his demonic cohort? You think you're going to do that on your own? That's a joke. And uh, you see people who are just living in sin. They break out against all sound judgment. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. I was in a pastor's group during COVID. And um, uh, there was this one pastor who was having some things going on with uh, one of his children. And he sought out some counsel from uh, three other pastors. I was one of them. And so this pastor kind of uh, shared the situation, what was going on with one of his children. And uh, the child was in un- like a really egregious unrepentant sin, like in a very serious nature. And uh, some of the other pastors, after they listened to this initial pastor, turned to that pastor and said, you know, um, I think that God's grace covers over this situation. I think that um, the blood of Christ is great enough for this situation because at one point your child did profess faith, okay? And so these two pastors gave them that advice. And when it came my turn to give advice, I said, you know what? I, I totally believe in God's grace. Um, but I have to tell you this, based upon what you're telling us, I don't see evidence that this person, that uh, your, your child is a believer. I don't. Um, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I do not, I do not see that this is a situation where someone can live in unre- this kind of unrepentance sin for this long and be okay with it. And then our stance as pastors should be, Hey, the blood of Christ covers us. The, the grace of Christ is great. I think that it can be, you know, if there's not this unrepentant, long-term style of sin in their life. But to say 
that it's okay because Jesus has covered all, I think is false. I think that person has to re-examine if they're truly a believer, period. And you know what? People need to hear that from time to time, you guys. You can, it is not loving for us to say to people, oh, you know, God will forgive, love, etc. And not also turn to certain people who are in this category and to say, brother, sister, maybe, I don't know, friend, you need to ask if, if, if you're really saved. And that's what John's reminding us of here. Um, verse 18, he says, God will protect us from the evil one, and the evil one will not touch him. Um, he's, John is circling back around to this second part of verse 18. Again, he talked about this in 1 John 2 where he said, young men will overcome the evil one. He talked about this in 1 John chapter 2 verse, and chapter 4, where he talked about Antichrist will be involved in the world. The evil one wants to destroy you through the world. God wants to protect you. Um, I mean, it, it just comes up, just randomly, right? I, I, I was on BibleGateway.com. Okay, I use that a lot to prepare my sermons, um, just to look up scriptures, BibleGateway.com. And then they have these ads of women in lingerie coming up on the side. Like, what the heck? And then if you actually press the button that says, you know, you close that, I don't know how these algorithms work, okay? But my hunch is if you close it, it shows you interacted with the ad, and they just keep showing you more. At any moment, the world could strike. Um, but God protects us. God protects us. And the evil one will not touch you, ultimately. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Listen to how many times he says the word true. We may know him who is true. Verse 20. We are in him who is true. Verse 20 again. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. He is the true God. Verse 20. That we may know him who is true. That he may be in us. The one who is true. Uh, John has mentioned this in 1 John chapter 2. He says that Jesus is the true commandment. He is the true light. Uh, when we keep his commandments, we are in the truth. Jesus, we are in the light. Jesus is not just a teacher of truth. He is the truth. Jesus did not discover the truth. He is the definition of truth. In the Christian faith, truth is not primarily a concept or an idea. In the Christian faith, truth is a relationship. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the very definition of truth. And the reason why that is superior to Buddha or Muhammad is because they were men who said that they discovered the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. See, truth is not just a declaration of something that is objective. 
It is a subjective reality to be encountered through relationship. And why is that the case? See, truth always is about objectivity and subjectivity. It is not just about what is said, the objective side, but it's also who is saying it. It's also who is the subject that is saying that. And so what to be true is, what the truth is, it really has two components. What is said that is true and who is saying it. Why is that important? It is because there is a trust element to truth. You will not be able to believe something that is said to you is true until you have believed that the person saying that truth is trustworthy. If you come to the determination that whoever is saying whatever you're wanting to believe, that that person is not trustworthy, then you will not believe that what they're saying is true. And so when he, when John is saying it is him who is true, it is not just that he is declaring truth. He is the definition of what is true because he is truth and he can be trusted. God being a trustworthy God is the starting point for us to believe that what he says is true. And both are important. We must trust God in order to believe that what he says is true. And finally, in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. He comes back again to 1 John 2, where he says in 1 John 2, the, all that is do not love the world, all that is in the world, the, uh, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from God, this is from the world. The world is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever, 1 John 2. Keep yourself from idols. Kind of an odd way to uh, close this whole epistle. It's kind of just this one line. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, but John is, is saying, throughout the sweep of 1 John, we have looked at the one and true and living idol, which is God. He is the one who is... Who, is worthy to be idolized because all other idols are dead. All other idols lead to death. God is the one who is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be idolized because he is the one who is the living idol, the living God, so to speak. My functional definition of what an idol is is not necessarily something that you um, struggle with from time to time. You can struggle with certain things without it really being a true idol in your life. I I think a better definition I've come up with of an idol is something that you're devoting yourself to, thinking about, and, and when God asks you to sacrifice it, you are unable to do that. You're unable to do that. See, there are certain things that we struggle with that are kind of just the normal flow of life and our fallenness, but there are certain things that we really devote ourselves to and we know it's not right. And maybe the body of Christ warns us or scripture warns us or our conscience bothers us and we say this is not right. 
And in that moment, we make a volitional choice to say, I'm unwilling and unable to sacrifice this. And it's become an idol. We have many idols in our world. Um, Lorraine and I were having a conversation, although, you know, AYSO, saw, we had, it, it's been a grueling schedule for us, September, since September. Uh, we've had both of our boys in AYSO soccer. And so we've had practices four nights a week, sometimes four games on a Saturday. Uh, it's been wild, and that's been going on for like four months, but it's come to an end. Um, and so I'm sad, but I'm happy. Um, and, but you know what? Some of the parents, it's fanatical. It's fanatical, some of these sporting parents. I mean, when Darcy was playing, um, and, 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 and Keen and, uh, Ethan, some of the parents on some of their teams, uh, they were saying play, playing uh, SEO basketball. I was like, I was thinking this, this parent is, is fanatical, okay? I'm sitting there listening to them. And it's not just they love this, okay? No, they worship it. And to hear some of them talk to, during the games was outrageous to me. It was outrageous. I turned to some, I was like, oh my gosh, how can the coach allow this parent to go on like this during the game? This is outrageous sports is an idol and if you threaten sports for some people or you say hey it doesn't really matter it's just a game they look at you like you're from mars and they're like dude get away from me i'm like fine um but sports is an idol you know yesterday the crypto uh space crashed went through a flash crash it was on the front page of cnn it was a big crash. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I, it's amazing what's happened in the whole crypto space over the past year. You listen to some of these people, and they talk on YouTube like, you who are my following, you are my flock. I'm going to take care of you. I, I, I'm here for you. Okay, We're going to get through this. I'm, I'm looking at going, you sound like a pastor. Okay, Mark Mobius is uh, he, he was very well known in the 80s, 90s. And so he used to run the Franklin Templeton hedge fund. Now he kind of has his own, I think, hedge fund or firm. Uh, he, was, he was on CNBC a, a couple weeks ago, and he had this great line. I actually quoted him in my book. He says, the crypto community is not an investment community. It's a religion. And anyone who understands what's happening in that community knows exactly what he's talking about. That's an idol. It can become an idol. It's not just an emergence of new finance in the world, which may or may not have validity. But for some people, it becomes an idol. For some. Elon Musk is a new idol in our world. I'm not saying you can't drive a Tesla. What I'm saying is uh, it's not right to idolize the man behind the company. And a lot of people do. Food became an idol in my life. And uh, when that was kind of taken away from me, doing whatever I want, whenever I want, I could never imagine a world where I was eating ice cream every day. I have had one scoop of ice cream in the past seven months. Okay? I thought I would have died if you did that before May. Uh, but I realized, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's all right. Um. We, in the Christian faith, can, 
we're never going to escape all this completely. But what, what Jesus does offer to us is he makes us aware that these are dead idols. He frees us from being complete slaves to them. And he offers us life as an alternative to them. And so John reminds us of all these wonderful things. Let's find our life through Christ. Let's pray together. We'll close in worship and uh, communion. Father, as we close together this morning, um, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we thank you for um, bringing to us the remembrance of Christ through his shed blood and his broken body on the cross that we symbolically remember in this moment. But also, Lord, I pray you do a work of grace in our hearts as we receive this, as we remember the work and our need for Christ in our lives. That uh, this is not just a ritual. This is a remembrance of someone who lives in our hearts now, who offers us the eternal life, not just for eternity, but for now. And we need that, Lord. Many of us are here today. We're broken. We're struggling. But we are holding on to this promise and this reality of of eternal life in our lives. So as we receive communion, let this be our declaration. God, I want this eternal life. I want to live out of it fully. And as I do that, Lord, it is my declaration that you are the source of that. Forgive me, God, for the ways I've prostituted myself to the way of the world. And renew in me a clean heart as I remember your death as well as your resurrection during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.